worth an experiment. How many of you have a pen or a pencil with you and a scrap of paper? Almost everybody. Take it out. Along the left side of the paper, write numbers one through nine. I'm going to ask you nine questions. This is not a quiz. This is not a right or wrong answer thing, and you're not going to hand them in. This is for your own self-knowledge. Woodrow Wilson was once asked how long it took him to write a one-hour speech. He said about two hours. And then the question was, well, how long does it take to write a five-minute speech? He said about two weeks. <laughs> I hope that's not true because you're going to write a very short thing here. I want you to answer nine questions as briefly as you possibly can. Just one line for each so we save time. Question one is very concrete. Uh, name the living person who has had the greatest influence on your life. Question two. You're going to have to do these quickly and instantly without much thought so that we get through it. Question two. Who are you? Interpret that question as you will, but who are you? Question three, what is God like? Obviously, there's a wide variety of good answers possible here. Question four, what is the church? Question five, what is the church's gospel? What does the church preach? Question six. You knew this was going to come from a philosopher. What is truth? That's really an easy question to answer. You just get one line and ten seconds to do it. Question seven. What is the meaning of life? Question eight, what is death? And now question nine is the only specific factual question that's a right or wrong answer. It tests your biblical literacy. What was the last command of the last apostle? point of this little self-test is to clarify your mind. I don't think any of you gave really bad, stupid, totally false answers, but some true answers are better than others, especially for their brevity. I want to talk a little bit about the Bible, and I'm going to compare your answers to these nine important questions with the Bible's answer to these nine important questions. And all nine of these questions, according to the Bible, can be answered by the same word, Christ. First question, what living person has had the greatest influence on your life? Did you not think of him as a living person? <laughs> then to you, as well as to the women at the empty tomb, the words of the angel are addressed. Why do you seek the living one among the dead? 
Have you forgotten his last words? Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Secondly, who are you? Here's St. Paul's answer. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old has passed away. Behold, the new have come. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. A third verse from Colossians. You have died, and your life is hid with Christ in God. Third question. What is God like? According to Colossians, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. There is no fuller answer to the question, what is God like, than Christ. That's all of it. Four, what is the church? The church is, according to Ephesians, his body. The fullness of him who fills all in all. Fifth, what is the church's gospel? The mystery which we proclaim is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Or as Paul said to the Corinthians, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Question six, what is truth? Well, there was a man who said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Truth is a person. And he stood right before Pontius Pilate, the skeptical philosopher, who was asking, what is truth? What is the meaning of life? Same verse, John 14, verse 6. I am life. And in light of that, next question, what is death? Here is Paul's answer from Philippians. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Because it's only more Christ. Finally, what was the last command of the last apostle? Well, that's John. And the very last verse of his first epistle is... Jesus Christ, this is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. An idol is anything that stands in the place of God. The very first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. What has this got to do with scripture, other than the fact that scripture clarifies and corrects our vision? Well, scripture is the word of God. That's how it describes itself. The very same phrase, the word of God, is used of Jesus Christ. So that Jesus Christ is the word of God in complete human form. The word of God in the flesh. Scripture is the word of God in print. Scripture is a portrait of Christ. Every word in the Bible is a cell in Christ's face. That's why it's so active. That's why when you read the Bible, it's not like reading any other book. It's like looking in a mirror. Suppose you go to a museum and you see beautiful pictures and one of them looks back at you. That's what happens when you read the Bible. Hebrews 4 verse 12 says, The word of God is living and active, like a two-edged sword. It does stuff to you. It says, it pierces to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, just as a knife can divide the joints and the marrow in a bone. What the author of that verse probably means by soul and spirit is that the soul is what everybody knows they have. The spirit is what not everybody knows they have. Your soul is your relationship to yourself. Your spirit is relationship to God, where the spirit is the center of the soul. 
or the point where God impinges on your soul. But Bibles should come in warning wrappers. This may be dangerous to your insanity and to your sin and to your self-aggrandizement. One of the best possible ways to pray is to pray the Bible. Prayer and scripture are best done together. The best way to read scripture is in prayer. And the best way to pray is to pray scripture. Jesus did. The Psalms are the prayer book written by God himself for us. And to read the Gospels as prayer, as communication between you and God, opens up all sorts of opportunities for God to show things to you. The medievals loved to read the Gospels as current events, as things happening in their own interior life. So you identify with everybody there. You are Judas, you are Peter, you are even Jesus. This is not to deny their literal and historical meaning. It's to say that built on that, there are wonderful additional meanings. And this was called the moral. That is, the events that happen in the Gospels also happen in your own life. We're taught, quite rightly, by the saints, that contemplative prayer is the highest kind and the kind that God wants for all of us, the prayer of silence. But that verbal prayer is the way we begin. And they're not a contrast. One is a way to the other. It's difficult for most people to become contemplatives. I don't mean to live as contemplative monks, but to do contemplative prayer. At least most people think it's difficult. I think the best way to do it is to do verbal prayer better. And the Bible is the best way to do that. Any farmer knows that the way to nourish a tree is to nourish the roots. If you want fruit, you don't pay attention to the fruit, you pay attention to the roots, the beginnings. Walk before you run. So there is my first suggestion. And the first suggestion is also the last suggestion because if you read the Bible or if you pray as an exercise, as a good thing to do, as something abstract, well, it's helpful. But if you realize that this is contact with Christ, this is a love letter between Christ and you. Well, that is a very different way of reading and much more powerful. But it's so simple. The simple things are the hardest. Keep focused on him. What does this have to do with him? We usually think of our life as a kind of a three-pole thing. Imagine over here is you. And... Up here is Jesus Christ, who, being divine and human, is God's immediate contact with you. No one knows the Father but through the Son. And over here is your world and your life and your problems and your daily issues and whatnot. And you want to bring Christ into your life. You want to use Christ as the bridge to everything else and the solution to all problems. That's fine. So that Christ is like a key and your life is like a whole bunch of doors with locks in them. And Christ is the golden key, the skeleton key that opens all the locks. That's good. That's right. That's very useful. My favorite fairy tale in the whole world is George MacDonald's fairy tale, The Golden Key. Two children find a golden key and then the rest of their life is a search for the door that the key opens. It's a wonderfully Christian allegory. Christ is the golden key. We received him 2,000 years ago into this world. And now the meaning of life is to find all the doors that that key opens. You've got the answer before you've got the question.
So that's right. That's good. But here's a better one. Here's a better picture than the three-pronged triangle of yourself here, Christ here, and your life there. The problem with that triangle is not that it has three points, but that it has three sides. One side is your relationship to Christ. That's your faith, your religion. The word means relationship. Another side of the triangle is your secular life, your natural life. And then the third side is Christ's solution to your life's problems. But a much better way, a much more biblical way of looking at your life is to say there's only two poles. Here's you, and here's Christ. And what about all that other stuff? That's a highway. That's Jacob's ladder. By which he comes to you, and by which you come to him. There's only two absolutes. See, that's where the threefold picture is mistaken. That says there's three absolutes. There's you and Christ and the world. No, the world is simply the place where you meet. The world is the bedroom where the spiritual marriage takes place. Not a third person. Your life, including all your problems and all his solutions, is that ladder by which the angels ascend and descend. In other words, nothing is secular. Nothing is not a relationship with him. Certainly not anything material because he's incarnate. Not anything divine because he's God. Not anything human because he's man. So all the separations are overcome in him. He unites everything. Well, then, praying with this consciousness is not that different than living. I mean, what you do in prayer is you have this consciousness. Here is you and here is Christ. And there's just a between. And then you emerge from prayer into a world in which there's other stuff. No, there's no other stuff. You bring your whole world into your prayer and you bring your whole prayer into your world. It's, it's just that ladder. It's just that between. But it's very difficult for us to remember that. It's extremely difficult. That point is so incredibly simple. When you die, you'll remember that. Because when you die, you know that there's only two things that you will never, ever escape. Yourself and him. And everything else, you just can't take it with you. So when you're on your deathbed, you're very, very wise. So it's very useful to remember that right now we're on our deathbed. It's just a matter of time. There's not many sins a person will commit on their deathbed. There's not many sins a person will commit in the presence of Christ. If Jesus Christ is here, you're not going to even be tempted to sin. The most sins anyway. Well, then practicing the presence. The consciousness of his presence is the key to everything. And that's not anything at all fancy. That's not a method. That's just living in reality. That's just sanity. The key to sanctity is sanity. There's no difference between sanctity and sanity. Both mean exactly the same thing, living in reality. And when we do that, we have joy. God made us to need joy. Thomas Aquinas says, no one can live without joy. That is why when we are deprived of true joy, we necessarily turn over to false joys, carnal pleasures. So, living in his presence is the key to everything. So why don't we do it? It gives us joy. We know that by experience. We know that by faith. 
and everybody wants joy. So why do we turn from what we know to be joy? What blocks us? Well, the Bible calls it sin. The English word sin is derived from the German word Sünde, which means separation or sundering, kind of broken relationship. And the Bible calls sin the mystery of iniquity. There's something irrational about sin. It's insane. We're nuts. We're daft. We're batty. We're bonkers. We're loony. Right now, at this moment, we're both being loony because I'm practicing my bonkers by talking about practicing the presence, and you're practicing it by listening and thinking about it instead of doing it. We're all like the theologian who died and was given the choice by God between going to heaven and going to do a theology lecture on heaven, and he chose the lecture. <laughs> it's helpful sometimes to insult yourself because then their shame and embarrassment might take you closer to God. We turn our heads anxiously, darting our eyes this way and that, like a rat in a corner or a prisoner in a torture chamber, not when we're in the prison cell of our own ego, but when we're in the boudoir of prayer. How hard it is to pray. But it's the greatest joy in life. How can the greatest joy in life be hard? How can we treat God's marriage bed as a prison cell and the devil's prison cells as marriage beds? We're nuts. Prayer is like a mountain and we're like that figure in the fairy tales who needs magic slippers to climb the mountain because it's a glass mountain and we keep slipping down. God couldn't have made us that way. But the easiest thing in the world is a kind of anti-gravity to God. So it's a jihad, it's a struggle, it's a fight to be sane. So how do you pray and how do you read scripture? My fundamental answer to each question is the same. You practice the presence. There's no other method that's as important as that because that's not a method at all. Almost all other religions give you method of prayer or methods of meditation. Jesus is the only major religious founder, I think, except Lao Tzu, who didn't give you any methods. He gave us instead a prayer, not a method. The Catechism answers the question why Christ gave us no distinctive way of prayer. And its answer is because he is our distinctive way of prayer. When the definitive way is present, lesser ways are extras and unnecessary. Other religious founders claimed to teach the way. Christ claimed to be the way. The way to pray as well as the way to live. There is no other way of Christian prayer than Christ. Catechism 2664. So, to get to God, it's not what you know, it's who you know that counts. <laughs> I wanted to keep this short, and this is almost ridiculously short, but I am going to just stop now and ask for questions. Yes? Yes. The question is, why is it so hard if the answers are so simple? If the answers are so simple, why does it 
remain so hard to pray and keep that? Because we're not simple. And everything in our world, especially in our modern culture, conspires together to make us less simple. We're octopusing all the time. We've got one hand on the phone and the other hand on the cell phone and our eyes on the email and our mind worried about schedules and what to do next. We're going nuts. So you've got to simplify. And sometimes you've got to do it in very concrete and physical ways. The habit of simplifying your life, I think, is necessary for sanity. I think we learn a lot from the Buddhists there. They're at least good psychologists. <laughs> Eastern religions, uh, let's say specifically Buddhism, have gained a lot more attention and respect in the culture. Uh, and maybe specifically by the scientific community. What do you see that Christianity can learn from this? Or what do you see that? We can all learn human stuff from other human beings, wherever they come from. And Buddhism has some very profound human psychology in it. The reason it's more scientifically respectable and more respectable in our culture is that it's not a supernaturalistic religion. There's no miracles in it. Everything is scientific. Everything is natural cause and effect. And it's popular in our culture because it does not have an absolute moral law. It doesn't believe that the distinction between good and evil goes all the way up and that there's a personal God uh, with commands. And we will use anything to get out of that uncomfortable notion. And there's also no hell in Buddhism. There's a lot of purgatories. And uh, in some forms of Buddhism, a lot of evil spirits. But eventually, you realize that you are Buddha. You are enlightened. Everyone is. We're all one thing. There's no alternative to God. Buddhism is a, a kind of pantheism without God. So there's no outer darkness. So the supernatural, sin, and eternal hell are not in Buddhism. Those are three very unpopular notions. How is asceticism and sacrifices part of prayer? To pray is to make a sacrifice. To pray is to say no to, to murder something else that you could be doing now. Time is precious. Time is life. There's no such thing as quality time. The psychologists say give quality time to your kids. Kids are brighter than that. They want quantity time. <laughs> the more the merrier. So every minute that you give to somebody, you take from somebody else. So when you give time to God, you're robbing somebody else or something else, usually yourself, of time. <laughs> 